Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. I invited them in our entryway and uh, I was, I guess, trying to deep breathe and prepare myself for whatever they were going to say. And uh, Derek, one of the detectives, said, Wendy uh, Taylor uh, was a victim of homicide and he's no longer with us. That is Wendy Johnson, who is the wife of our host, Pastor Paul Johnson. And today we're breaking with our normal format as Paul and Wendy will share the very personal story of the homicide of their son, Taylor, on life support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. And all we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Life Support is a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, where Paul is the lead pastor, and Five Stone Media. I'm Five Stone Media Executive Director Steve Johnson, and full disclosure, also the brother of our host, Paul. So now let's join the conversation with Paul and Wendy Johnson. I'm so glad you've visited us on Life Support this week, and we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk about my story, our story, with my wife, Wendy, who's here with me in studio. Wendy, it's good to have you, and it's nice to see a smiling, pretty face. Not that all of our guests aren't smiling and pretty, however. Thank you. Thanks. No, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, Our story is not any worse or any better than anyone else's story. Our story is ours to tell, but it is what we hope will give you some comfort and encouragement as you move forward in your own lives. And really, things happened for us seven years ago that became life-changing. And so, Wendy, why don't you go ahead and and just talk a little bit about uh, the events of the night that you found out that our 21-year-old son, Taylor, had been the victim of a homicide and talk a little bit about uh, what you were experiencing. I was... Um, away from home at that time. I was taking a class, but you were there with our uh, two younger children, and then everything kind of fell apart. Yeah, so um, I remember I had our boys there. uh, We have twin boys that were six and a half at the time, and I had them in the tub, and I got a text message um, from Pastor Rick, our associate pastor at our church there in Canada, and Um, He asked if I was home, and I said, yeah, and I thought, okay, well, Paul's out of town. He must need my help with something, and he said, I'm at your front door, so I quickly got the kids out of the bath, and um, at least I think that's how it went down, and I uh, got them settled and uh, went downstairs, opened the door, and here is Pastor Rick with two RCMP officers. And my heart started to pound really fast. And um, the first words out of Pastor Rick's mouth were, um, Wendy, Paul is okay. And uh, that was very reassuring for me. But at the same time, I knew something was dreadfully wrong. And uh, I invited them in our entryway. And... uh, I was, I guess, trying to deep breathe and prepare myself for whatever they were going to say. And uh, Derek, one of the detectives, said, Wendy uh, Taylor uh, was a victim of homicide and he's no longer with us. 
So Taylor um, is our son that was 21 years old at the time, uh, was two weeks away from graduating from Nimbus School of Recording Arts. And and uh, all of a sudden, my world was caving in and I my brain just started scanning, kind of like a filing cabinet or I'm like going through photo albums. And I really desperately needed to know when the last time I saw Taylor was. I needed to remember. And so I remember pacing a little bit. And uh, Derek and um, Rick and um, the other gentlemen, they were just so compassionate as they just waited for me to process this horrible information. And I went into our powder room and just I just stood there deep breathing. And I was, I was like, okay, when did I see Taylor last? When did I see Taylor last? And he had not long ago moved out. He, um, he about a month and a half prior, um, moved in with some people and, um, and so he had come by a few days prior to get his mail. And we, I remember us all being in the kitchen and like living room area. And, uh, I remember sitting, I was sitting at the t- kitchen table with our boys with, I was working on schoolwork with them or something. And Paul and Taylor were at the Island there talking. He was grabbing his mail. Um, Mackenzie was sitting, in, uh, over by the red couches and I, remember when he said, okay, well, you know, good to see you guys. And as he left, I remember we all stood up to hug him. And that was like this treasured moment for me. Tears just welled up in my my eyes because I was just so thankful. The, the last time we saw him, we hugged him. I mean, that didn't always happen, right? Like sometimes he would come in and out and we'd be like, okay, yeah, see you later. But that hug is like so precious to me now. So, um, came out of the powder room and came out and just was processing a little bit with the detectives and they just said look you know the it's still under investigation we want to wait and give you time for Paul to get home that's the next step just just uh you need to tell Paul and then he just needs to come home from Phoenix and we'll meet with you both and kind of give you what we know and so I remember calling our best friends, Mark and Kylie, and just said, guys, can you come? And I told them the short version, and they came right away um, and stayed with the boys who were in bed and waited for Mackenzie to get home from youth group while I went to Pastor Rick's house and made the phone call to you. And um, I remember asking Rick, will you pray with me before I called Paul? And so uh, we prayed together, and then I remember calling you, and pretty much saying the words that were spoken to me. I didn't want to add to it or whatever, but it was just, babe, I have some really sad news. Uh, Taylor was a victim of homicide, and he's no longer with us. And I remember you saying, what? What? And you were just trying to grapple with it. So we kind of sat there in silence for a few minutes. And I think at one point I just kept going, are you there? Are you there? So... um yeah, it's a confusing phone call to get because yeah. you're not really sure what it means at first because you're not computing. And um, when someone might say he was in a car accident or, you know, um, OD'd on drugs or something, you can sort of com- uh, come to grips with that. But when it's murder, it's something that's so far outside of the lines that you can't even grasp it at first. Mm-hmm. And so having the detectives come to the door was, I'm sure, very frightening. And, and for quite a long time after that, I remember when any police officers would come 
around our area for any reason, it brought that moment back. Yeah, and I think of the boys, too, because they walked past them on the landing to get to their bedroom, and so they remember that night as the man with the shiny shoes, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's their memory. Um, After I made the phone call to you, then uh, Rick brought me back home, and I was able to process a little bit with Mark and Kylie there, but Mackenzie had gotten home from youth group, and uh, she was 13 at the time, I believe, and... um, so I knew I wasn't going to be able to withhold from her for a whole night or wherever. You were trying to get a flight home, and so ended up sharing the news with Mackenzie, and we just spent the night together really weeping, and she slept in bed with me, and we just tried to put on stupid movies to get through the night till you got home. And we knew that we were going to wait to tell the twins until you were home. There's no way I could have done that by myself. And uh, I think from that phone call that we had together, we kind of plotted out who was going to call who. And, you know, you would call her other two kids in the States, and I would call my parents. You'd call Steve and, you know, and so on. Um, I think one thing for sure at that point, we had no idea what was ahead for us, and we had no clue at all um, the not only the the grind that I was going to be, but the the fallout, the ripple effects, mm-hmm. and even uh, what God was going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Because I think that for a long time we were just numb. But I do remember talking to the detectives on that first phone call. I called them from Phoenix, and their counsel to me was just come home and don't talk to the media. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, don't talk to the media. Right. They're, they're not your friends. Mm. And that was a clue that this was going to be a major media story. And I remember watching the news and seeing stories of with the helicopters hovering over the house Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. that made it a very unsafe for us to go Mm -hmm. anywhere Mm -hmm. or or do anything because Mm -hmm. we felt like we were being watched and we felt like people were looking at us funny and it was just a very strange feeling. Mm -hmm. I remember just having that because we didn't know how he was killed um, we just had so so little information that our minds, I think, we all kind of came up with what we thought happened to just try to get get by. But we, it really instilled in all of us fear. Um, we didn't know um, if it was gang-related. We didn't know if they knew where we lived because Taylor had moved out shortly before. So, um, you know, we had friends that were coming over. We were putting extra locks on doors and windows and... We really didn't go out. Um, Our church family would get our grocery list, and they'd go to the grocery store. It was just too uh, evasive for us to go out in public. Um, And it was in the newspapers, on the news, so we had to really guard from having the kids see anything um, on on the TV and in the papers. Um, And they slept on our floor every night for probably six months. Um, just remember night after night having a kid on either side of us and one at the foot of our bed and holding our arms down at the side, holding their hands while we felt they fell asleep. At times, just kid after kid waking up with nightmares and having to pray for them and, and pray that we could all get sleep. I mean, as I think back now, I just... I guess blown away by all we've been through. 
and just God's graciousness along the way. Um, it, it, it blows my mind. I mean, we still have obviously those ripple effects that you talk about, and we're still living through really hard stuff with our kids and how they're navigating life right now. But um, I just, when I need to think about how God has been faithful to us and has carried us, it's really important for me to look back and recall those times that he was our helper. And so even providing us with the ability to lean over, hold hands with our kids and have the wherewithal to pray because we were in such a fog, you know. So I'm just really thankful. We'll continue with Paul and Wendy in just a moment. But I want to mention that the video version of this interview will air immediately following this program. And you can find it through the site fivestonemedia.com or go to YouTube and find the Life Support channel. Not only this interview, but all of the Life Support programs. And now back to the conversation with our host, Paul, and his wife, Wendy. That was a hard time because not only were we unsure of anything that had happened, the police couldn't tell us. Uh, we knew where, and that's it, because we had to go retrieve his car and, and so forth, but we had no idea who or why. And um, it was hard, too, because we were just in shock mm -hmm. and we were in a fog, and we went eight months before we knew anything. Mm -hmm. And they were good at contacting us, and I think one of the practical aspects of that is when people are in trauma, when they're going through things, don't expect them to be who they were and don't ever expect them to go back to being that person because you're, you're, you're fundamentally shifting and changing. Your body's being rewired. Your thinking changes. Everything changes during those, those times. And that was really hard because people, I was a pastor of a church, and they expected something from me. They expected the the St. Paul to come back, and the, the St. Paul didn't mm -hmm. come back. And um, that's one thing I see as people deal with people that are struggling, mm -hmm. is there's that expectation that the, the old person's going to return at some point. Right, and I also think of um, just having walked through trauma now and and meeting others in in different journeys, but traumatic journeys, and just how not only has it rewired your brain, so you, you're not, you know, left side's not, you know, communicating with left and right, and you're, you're having a hard time at, uh, at times putting together your thoughts and your words. And even now I struggle with that. And so super thankful when people are gracious with me. And then when others come along and they're like, I'm sorry, I just can't even think right now. Just knowing what that feels like um, also is helpful so I think the the unknown was was really really hard and as the police kept checking in with us um, our kids were really really struggling mm -hmm. we we're trying to get our young twins who mm -hmm. were six at that point uh, trying to get them through this because one of them reacted in, in just fierce anger that really hasn't left yeah. one of them curled up in a in a ball and cried, and they both reacted differently. But I do remember the day after uh, we were we we lived in a cul-de-sac, and this is a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia, which is a couple hours north of uh, Seattle. And I remember the the sheriff 
the police chief pulled up, who I had become friends with just by developing relationships, Jim Sesford. Mm -hmm. And he got out of his car, and uh, his one of his assistants got out of their car, and then the, the police dog the, that they used to help kids got out of the car. Mm. And they came in, and, you know, I had many people tell me afterwards that to have the police chief come to your house, was that never happens. Mm. And I think even then we are starting to see God working uh, through those small little things that mm-hmm. were beginning to happen. Of course, mm-hmm. we didn't really realize it at the time. Right. But God was already involved with our lives and our story, mm-hmm. even at that point. And, you know, the the province we lived in had wonderful services for us mm-hmm. to help our children mm-hmm. and to, you know, help us through the whole court situation mm-hmm. later on. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, families that are going through things in your church um, are raw and you you really need to treat them with kit gloves. Show them you love them, but don't force anything on them mm-hmm. and don't expect anything from them because mm-hmm. they just can't give you anything mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're walking such a hard journey. And and I think part of it, too, is you don't know who to... I remember feeling um, like I wanted the world to stop. I wanted time to stop. I didn't think it was right that um, people were still going about their daily business because on one hand, I wanted to shout to the world, our, our son is gone. But on the other hand, I didn't want to tell anyone. It was just this weird collision in my, in my mind and in my heart. Um, but I, I truly thought nothing should be happening right now. The world should be stopping right now. Yeah, well, yeah I understand that. Yeah. And because your, your world has been totally turned upside down. Yeah. Let's fast forward eight months into the future because, uh, you know, we were watching, waiting for some kind of a report on what was what was happening mm-hmm. with the investigation, starting to wonder if anyone was ever going to be arrested. Uh, one of my friends who had a brother who was a police officer, I'm not sure, did me a real service by <laughs> saying, "Look in the trees. Look at you know old ladies pushing baskets. Those are the those are the police officers that are, that are watching over your house." Mm-hmm. But. Um, we finally got a call from our detectives and said, we're going to make arrests on Monday. This was, I think, on Friday or Saturday mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And they came over to our home and began to prepare us for the next stage. Mm-hmm. And they, one thing I remember that you did, each time they came over to our home and sat around our table, you prayed for them. Mm-hmm. And, and you would say, guys, can I pray for you? And they, mm-hmm. you know, they looked very uncomfortable and they kind of looked down at their shoes, and, but they never said no. And here they were again. This time they brought their media expert, and they began to prepare us for what would be a week of arrests and press conferences and all of the, th- all of the hoops we were going to have to jump through. But again, God was working because he led us into some situations where uh, the light of Christ could shine in, in darkness. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we had to deal with was a press conference, mm-hmm. which was really a surreal experience. Mm-hmm. But the arrest came the next day. They started the next day. And I think you remember this really clearly like I do. They they had us do a, a video before they left, and it was a video to plead with the mm-hmm. people they arrested mm-hmm. to cooperate so Mm -hmm. it was the you know the mom and dad saying hey this is our son we loved our Mm -hmm. son have compassion Mm -hmm. cooperate with the police Mm -hmm. 
and then them saying this, don't worry, you know, we've even had to call a parent in, mm -hmm. don't worry, this won't happen, mm -hmm. we won't, we won't, but this video will be very helpful, mm -hmm. thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And the next day they started making arrests, and sure enough, uh, a couple days later, we started getting calls, mm -hmm. not cooperating. Mm -hmm. So we really began to get a taste of what this was going to be like, I think, mm -hmm. at that moment. I just wanted to share, I don't know if you remember this, but um, when they told us that they were going to make arrests, I remember at that point, I don't know if the kids were with, with uh, Diane doing a field trip or something, I don't know, um, but I had heard someone knock on our front door, and I was alone at the house. I heard someone knock on the front door, and then I heard someone, and they had a package in their hand, and then I heard someone try to open our front door. And I was so scared. And I tried to call you or text you, but you were in meetings or something and you couldn't come. And so I remember calling Pastor Rick and, and Pastor Rick came over to the house and sat in our front living room until I was going to leave to do the next thing I needed to do. But that I was just remembering the fear I felt. Um, and it was not really, uh, I don't know, realistic what the word is, you know, but that's it just all was birthed out of the fear I well, had felt. Well, what violence did was pull the rug out of security uh, under, you know, from underneath all of us. Yeah. And that violence aspect of it drove home the fact that the things that you can usually explain away, like when you're on a plane and you're getting, you know, it's a little bumpy or whatever, mm -hmm. you can say, well, you know, the odds are mm -hmm. a million to one that we mm -hmm. crash. All of a sudden you don't have that anymore because you've seen the unexplainable happen to you. Yeah, and I remember I crouched down between our island and the other cabinets in our kitchen, and I was curled up in a ball until Rick got there. That's just the the fear that was just gripping Yeah, and me. there's no doubt that we were – we look back now, and, and we know that we were experiencing, you know, experiencing post-traumatic stress, mm -hmm. and our kids were. Mm -hmm. And, again, it's that violence aspect. I couldn't watch television shows with – any kind of shooting or mm -hmm. loud noises or mm -hmm. anything would, would freak us all out. Mm -hmm. The terrible, you know, the 4th of July celebrations mm -hmm. and so forth mm -hmm. uh, were awful. But we, we finally came to the time when the arrests were going to be made, and we, we began to realize that we were going to have to come face-to-face -face with this, not only with the people that did it, but with uh, a court system, and it was going to be really um, – a difficult journey, and we thought we'd already been through a difficult mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. But I think at this point we'd already learned that God was working, and we had already committed this to God, and we'd already said to him that we wanted to just take Jesus wherever we go in this journey, mm -hmm. and we wanted to be seen as you know walking in faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that our relationship with God was growing, even though we were uh, sad and in despair. I remember you know, just crying out to Christ in a, in a way that I'd never had to before. And so there were already things happening that would shape us that we, we didn't have any idea that it would. And I want to get into that next time we get together. I want to talk a little bit about the the way that God helped us during the court battles and mm -hmm. the way God has intervened since with our family and some of the struggles that go on with trauma victims mm -hmm. and how they have to deal with it so that as you walk alongside of them, uh, you can be helpful. I'm Paul, and I'm with my wife, Wendy, this week, and we're talking about our story, and as we work through trauma, 
And this has really set the stage for a lot of what we do here on Life Support. And I just want to remind you that suffering does come. It comes to us all. And sometimes the righteous suffer even more than others because Jesus told us that the enemy's not going to stand by while we spread the gospel and the world will hate us. And I know that one of my inspirations is the Apostle Paul. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. So don't be afraid. If you're experiencing a difficult time right now, God has promised that you won't be destroyed. He is with you always, and he will hold you in his hand, and you can always depend on him. I want to thank you for listening to Life Support this evening. We're really thankful for our partners here, Faith Radio. We're thankful for Five Stone Media. If you'd like to see a video version of this show, just log on to fivestonemedia.com. You can also reach out to us at Ridgewood Church at myrwc.org slash life support. And at Ridgewood, we want to take in people that are hurting and, and help them. I would also really love to have you join me on Twitter at Pastor Paul J. Thanks so much for being with us, and we'll catch you next time on Life Support. The video version of this interview will air immediately following this program, and you can find it through the site fivestonemedia.com or go to YouTube and find the Life Support channel. Not only this interview, but all of the Life Support programs. Life Support is a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, where Paul is the lead pastor, and Five Stone Media. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.